and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. When, when, I, when I think about a person who would ask, to, ask me about finding a church, I, I know that for many people, what they do is they, they look for a church and they examine its program. They examine Sunday morning, let's say. And what I've said to people for years and years and years is this. When you go into a church, ask somebody who's been there three or five years what it's like and what they believe and who they are because they are the fruit of that program. And if those people are not who you wish you were, then go to find another church. Because what we're not used to doing is we're not used to measuring a church by its fruit. We have made the program its fruit. Yeah. Yeah. But the fruit is the audience of the program. And that's where people are hunting for a church. They should literally go to the people who have been profoundly influenced by that program because yeah. that will be the key to their finding a church it's just a simple question how long have you been here what are you like because in three to five years i'm going to be like you and is that what i want to be in the gospel of matthew chapter 9 jesus is walking through various cities and he's seeing all these different people and he 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 comes to a conclusion he makes a comment and and matthew records his for us what Jesus is feeling. And it says that upon seeing the people and the state of distress that they're in, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, there's a, there's a phrase we use in our in our world, in a society. It's it's really designed for the, the Twitter sphere, you know, it's it's leadership matters or hashtag leadership matters, I guess. It's it's really the point that Bill Thrall was trying to make in that video there. That if, if you ever want to know what kind of a church you're part of, or where you're gonna go or who you're gonna be like, then take a look at the leaders. Take a look at those people who are, who are kind of driving the bus in that sense because basically, if you ask that question, are these people heading in the right direction? Do I, do I want my life to head in that direction? That's, that's the value of leadership. That's the point it plays. We see that in the story of Israel over and over again. In, in particular, the kind of king they had. That if they had a king that, that leaned into God and trusted God and looked to God, then as a people, they would do the same thing. But if they had a king who was more into worshiping other gods or more about collecting his own power and being more self-centered and selfish and looking out for his own comfort and pleasure, then as a nation, they would do the same thing. Because leadership matters. It's why we spent so many weeks now taking a look at, and at each of these different leadership gifts, these, these leadership offices within the church. And we've kind of compared them to different pieces of a puzzle. And, and I've heard from many of you how much you've been enjoying this, this study because you're beginning to see how these various pieces of the puzzle all kind of fit together and how they, how they work together. And so we started off with looking at the apostle. And we saw that the apostle is much more than just some kind of a, a super leader or someone who got authority over multiple churches or is gifted in some powerful way. Really, the term apostle is from the Roman world, and it, it speaks to someone who is, is sent out into a, a community 
to establish a new culture. And their job is to model it, to teach it, to, to help it foster it and help it to grow. And, and so within the church, that's essentially what the apostles were meant to do. They were the ones primarily responsible with creating the community that the people would experience. They would get to experience this community of grace. They would understand what a new covenant uh, interaction would look like. And then we talked about a prophet. And the office of the prophet, again, is much more than just talking about future things. Or, and it's most certainly not like the Old Testament prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophet was there was, was to rain down judgment and condemnation and warnings over and over again. But the New Testament prophet is something different. Yes, it's pointing them back to God. It's reminding them of who he is. And doing that through, through encouragement, through exhortation, through uh, consola- consolation or comforting. That's really what the, the New Testament prophet is. And we saw, really, that's, that's what the, the Christ-centered counselor does today. People who are reminding us about who we are in Jesus and who Jesus is in us. And, and we saw another great example of that from Lisa this morning during worship. And, and it was so good because we, we need those messages of encouragement. We need that times of, of comfort, especially when the Raptors get bounced too early in the playoffs. Niven, I feel your pain. I'm still struggling as well. I haven't been able to watch any more games since then, really. And then last time we were together, we, we looked at the evangelist, and we saw the critical role the evangelist plays, sort of like the midwife, where they're there to help assist in that birth of someone and someone coming to salvation in Christ. And, and then when that's done, they get to hand them off to, to the other leaders in, in the church, uh, freeing that evangelist to go back and just minister and, and love on, on new people and bringing them into the, the body of Christ. So each piece is a little bit different. Each piece, piece playing a very different role. And, and so this morning now what we want to do is we want to look at the last of the four, which is that pastor-teacher. And again, it's, it's one gift, one office in particular, the pastor-teacher. It's the one that I think is most referred to, but not necessarily well understood within the church. And I say that because so often what we do is we just assume that anyone who's on staff is getting paid, they're a pastor. And, and we kind of lump all the different offices into one. But the pastor teacher has a unique gifting, a unique role that is a little bit different than the apostle, a little bit different than the prophet, and a little bit different than the, than the evangelist. Now again, a pastor teacher might do, might have that offering of, a, of an apostle or prophet and evangelist as well, because you're not limited to only one office, but there is something a little bit unique and different about the pastor teacher. So that's what I want us to do today, this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to kind of move quickly through it. But uh, for the final time, let's read through our passage then, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And it says here, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning is, is in many ways an overwhelming message because of the, the critical role uh, that, that pastor teachers get to play. And we're all coming at this passage or this idea, this role with our, our previous experiences and preconceptions and, and all kinds of different things. And Father, I, I pray most importantly that what is spoken and what is taught is truth that we get to see from your word what a pastor teacher is and what they're meant to do and 
and the function they offer and that we would all be able to hear it from open, with open hearts, Father. And so I'm trusting you as best I know how. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to move quickly. Uh, so get your coffee ready. Uh, but to start, we're going to look really quickly through some of the common forms of, of church government or church leadership that we see in, in churches. So the first one <clears throat> I want to look at is the congregational model. So here the church establishes a roster of members, uh, a membership where people have said, this is going to be my own church, and they sign off on, on certain things. Uh, in terms of beliefs, and maybe you have to uh, perform certain rituals and so forth, and and they get to now decide, based on a democracy, based on a vote, what are some of the major decisions within the church. So if there's a church building fund or hiring new pastors and 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 there and so forth, and so what happens is it's put to a vote from the the membership, and the appeal of this option is that it's it kind of appeals to our democratic sensibilities that we live in a democratic nation. And so we're kind of used to that idea that democracy rules and democracy speaks to things. But the problem with this approach, number one, at least, <clears throat> is, is it functions as a majority now. And just because a majority comes to a conclusion doesn't mean the majority is correct. All it means is that a majority agrees together. And, and the reality is a majority can still have a wrong opinion. For example, the majority of the people in the world reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That doesn't mean it's correct. doesn't mean it's right. It just means that the majority leans that way. You see, what happens is when you have this kind of majority lead, a democracy in that sense within the church, it tends to be dominated by a, the, the most powerful personalities within the church. And so they get to drive the, the bus from behind almost without having an official role because they can motivate or, or kind of get enough people behind them to move things forward. And not only that, the bigger problem with it is it's just simply not biblical. We don't see this happening within the biblical, this style of leadership being implemented. It's more of a product of our, of our democracy that we've seen in, in societies in the last couple hundred years. So that's the one option. The other option, or the second option, <clears throat> is the, the pastor-led model. And here we have one man who kind of is over top of everything. He's at the top of the org chart. The, the lead pastor, the senior pastor. And this approach, I think, is, is very uh, attractive to people simply because of the efficiency in which it offers. It's really easy to get things done when you've got one person making all the decisions. The problem is it's too much power for one person, which I think is why it appeals to those people who want to have control because it gives them all that control, but that, that amount of control is not healthy. Remember that wise proverb, right? That absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's too easy for that pastor in that situation to be get focused in on building up their own kingdom and making it all about themselves and seeking their own glory, whether they realize it or not. And what again, it attracts those who are most domineering, little dictators who sees everyone to serve them under their own their authority and under their control. And there's one thing that I guarantee will happen in this situation. People get hurt. People get hurt badly. Our churches are littered with this style. Sometimes it's intentional and in that they designed it this way, that one man's going to be in charge. But sometimes it happens almost by default, that I've seen it within a congregational-led church, yet one person has all the power and all the control. And, and so we see this in so many churches 
which is why there's not enough books to contain all the stories of people who've been hurt by as, as a result of this. People who've been taken advantage of, people who've been abused, attacked, blamed, and beat up by church leaders. And, and when I think about this, when I, when I imagine about all this happening, it's easy for me to relate to how Jesus would have felt when he grabbed up that whip and went into the temple and chased out those people who are using his father's house to hurt his own people, to hurt his children. And, and when I see or I hear stories of, of church leaders who've, who've taken advantage of God's people, it, it's just, it's hard to imagine anything more insidious than that. And so this is not a, a healthy model because, again, too much power in one person is just gonna, a recipe for disaster. But the other thing is it's, it's also not fair to that one person because it's too much of a burden. It's too much of a weight for one person to bear on their own. So those first two, they're not biblical. They're not the way God intended it. Instead, the third option, I think, is the way that God designed the church to, uh, to operate and function is, is the where it's led by a church of elders, a group of men called elders. And I say that because we see throughout Scripture, this is how Paul implemented the leadership in the church. So whenever he was on a missionary journey, when he was about to leave that church, leave that city that he had established a church in, the last thing he would do often is he would appoint elders. For example, we have Acts in, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, Paul, it says here, when they had appointed elders for every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice that it's, in, it's in, in every church. It wasn't just one local area. This happened in every church. And, and what it tells us here is that the church is also to be led locally, that these elders were going to be the local leadership. It wasn't going to be led from, from Jerusalem or Antioch or Corinth or, or from afar. It was meant to be led locally. And so that kind of rules out the whole denominational structure aspect of things. But the other thing that we see is it was a plurality of elders, right? He appointed multiple elders, not just one man, not just one elder. And it was by appointing. That's how Greg became an elder, by the way. He was appointed. Didn't matter whether he wanted the role or not. Too bad, Greg. Sorry, you were appointed. All right. Now, again, moving quickly here. What's really critical, I think, to our discussion in understanding uh, a pastor teacher and, and why I brought up elder is because the, the, the term or the, the, the title of pastor or elder or bishop or overseer, depending on your translation, they're all used interchangeably, right? So, so the word pastor in the Greek is poimen, and it literally means shepherd. That's the Greek word for shepherd. And it's where we get our English word pastor from, because pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. Uh, elder, which is presbyteros, that's where we get the word presbytery from. Uh, that would be the, the translation for elder. And then bishop or overseer, again, depending on your translation, is the word epikiso. Oh, man, I practice this again. Epis, man, episcopos. Sad. Anyways, this is where we get the word Episcopal from, right? And so it refers to bishop or overseer. But again, each of those titles is used interchangeably. Again, let me demonstrate for us. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, and verse 17, Paul here, <coughs> he says, From Miletos he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. And then verse 28, he says to these elders of the church, 
He's, he's kind of been talking to them. And then in verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourselves, for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word again that I can't pronounce properly. To shepherd, there's that the, the word pomain, to shepherd the church which he has purchased for his own blood. So we can see here he's, he's used all three terms in addressing the same group. Or we have Peter, who's writing to a multiple multitude of churches that are, would be in modern-day Turkey. And he says to them in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I, the, uh, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Notice he doesn't use the word arch-elder or super-elder or chief-elder. He's not an elder of the elders. He's appealing to them as equal elders. And that's why, again, it's a local-led leadership, not from afar. So he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as a partaker also of this glory that is revealed. Shepherd, pomenos, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So again, he's using those three terms um, uh, interchangeably in that way. One commentator, he kind of summarized it this way. He says this, elder emphasizes who the man is. Bishop or overseer, again, depending on your translation, speaks of what he does. And pastor deals with his attitude and character. So to understand the role of pastor teacher, we have to understand the role of elder or bishop or overseer. And again, they're all one and the same. But that's not typically how we've used it. Typically, again, we use the term pastor as anyone who's on staff, anyone who's getting paid. So we have a youth pastor often, or a worship pastor, or the children's pastor. And, and now it's become more popular, there's the executive pastor. And so we're, we're using those terms to describe a, a pastor in that way. And then we might use the term elder to describe who's on the board of the church, who are on the board of directors. And then a bishop might be referring to someone who's in charge, the one who's on top, or if there's some kind of denominational structure here. But the reality is the bishop, the elder, the overseer, the pastor, they all should be talking about the same person. And so here at New Life, we, we reserve the term pastor only to speaking to those who are elders, which means we wouldn't hire a worship pastor. We'd hire a worship leader if we were to hire one and call him that or a youth leader, or a youth ministry director, or an executive director. We would use those terms. We would only call them pastor if they were going to be serving as an elder, because that's what that term is reserved for. And a quick note, by the way, I use the word pastor. I don't use the word reverend. Uh, I remember when I first got ordained, they, they, they called me a reverend, and I said, oh, we got to change that real quick, because there's only one revered one, and that's Jesus. And so... We dropped that one real quick. So, so reverend, I don't think is a biblical term, but, but pastor is. So let me introduce you then to the elders of new life. And so here's this picture of these, these three average-looking guys and Robin. And, uh, and so here are your elders. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I know it's a little disappointing. But please remember that this is God's gift to you. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. And with gifts, there are no returns and no exchanges. Um, but let me encourage you a little bit, because here's a picture with their wives, or our wives. Uh, and, I, and I say that because, listen, if we can convince these women to marry us, clearly we've got something going for us, because none of us are rich. 
So we can't be that bad, right? And so we, there's some hope for us, right? And, uh, and proof that God's grace gives to those who don't deserve it. Though, so what we see there is, is there, was, there was Pastor Ross, and we had Pastor Josh, and we had Pastor Robin, and we had Pastor Greg. We're all pastors, and we're all equal in our, in, as pastors. I have the title of lead pastor, but that doesn't mean I have any more authority or any more power than any other of the pastors. We operate as one when we get together, which means we have to be unanimous in our decision-making. And the reason is because the same Holy Spirit lives in me, lives in Robin, lives in Josh, and lives in Greg. And so we're trusting that for God to, to, to lead us as we're, as we're pastoring, as we're leading the church. And that's so important. And I'm so glad to know that I've got those three other guys who are serving alongside of me because you guys are too important. You guys are too precious. And we're talking about God's children, the bride of Christ. I, I don't want to mess with that. I want to make sure that that's protected. And so we're very cautious with that. Now, with that being said, pastors can be paid. There can be vocational pastors. We, we see that in, in uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 9 or Galatians 6, where Paul talks about how it's okay for someone to, to earn a living, to, to finance the expenses of this world through ministry work. And what it does is it allows us to dedicate more time and energy into the work and role of, as pastors. And so Robin and myself, we're bivocational. What that means is that we don't get our entire income from New Life. We're partially funded from New Life, and then we have other sources of income. So, for example, I work part-time at Crossways to Life as, as a counselor and executive director, and then part-time at New Life, which allows us to then dedicate more time into preparing for the message. Because a lot of time, a lot of energy goes into week after week studying Father's Word, trying to understand Father's Word, and being paid allows us to do that more and more and more time. So what you could say is that Robin and I are paid to be good, and Josh and Greg are good for nothing. And I can just picture Meg going, amen, amen, right? All right, moving on. Again, moving quickly. Now, most churches, they're set up as nonprofit organizations. And the reason they set that up is to allow us to, to issue tax, receivable, uh, um, or tax receipts for any gifts or any donations given to the church. And so one of the things that's required then for that is to have a corporation and a board. And so what happens in most churches, I see, is the elders also serve as the board because the board is what governs and leads the organization. Um, and they would operate as any other organizational board would operate, any board of directors would operate. And so when we were planning New Life and trying to figure out, well, how do we want it to operate and function and so forth, we decided to take a different approach. And the reason we took a different approach is because of what we began to see in Acts chapter 6, in the first four verses there. Because what we see there is, is the church beginning to establish some, some kind of order to itself. And so beginning in verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic refers to the Greek Jews, or, or Jews that lived more like the Greeks against the native Hebrews. So it's still Jew versus Jew, but based on different culturals, cultural aspects to it. Because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12, that would refer to the 12 apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom may be put in charge of this task. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see here is that these seven men were the first deacons of the church. Deacon is the, the Greek word for servant. And, and it was their job to look after more of the, the practical administrative tasks within the church, allowing the elders now to focus in on the more spiritual things, the, the praying and the studying in the, of the word and the teaching of the word, the ministering through word. So what that means here at New Life is that we have a board of deacons or, or a board of directors. Uh, and we we kind of use the term interchangeably, and mainly because the word deacon sort of kind of fallen out of favor. It's no longer uh, used popularly or, or widely. And so what happens is this group, this these deacons, they they are appointed by the elders, and they now look after all the administrative tasks in terms of dealing with government and, and finances and, and so forth. So I want to give a big shout out to John Balfour, to Sheila Balfour, to Jeremy Ballard, and to Sue Summer. You guys are doing a great job, and, and you're, you're doing wonderful. So thank you for looking after that. You guys look after the budgets and income statements so that the elders can look at now trying to pastor and look after the heart of the individuals a part of New Life. Now, in addition to having an elder board and, a, and the deacon or the board of directors, we've got these various ministry teams. And these, these ministry teams, they don't report to the deacon board. Basically, the deacon board serves them. It's, it's their job now to provide the, each of these ministry teams, whether it be the worship team, the AV team, and so forth, the resources that they need to carry out their mission. And so that's how we're kind of structured and operating. So that's kind of a little background on the church government aspect of things. Now we want to look more at this, this elder or pastor or overseer, and we want to start talking about the qualifications a little bit of this here. Now, it's interesting of the, of the four leadership roles that are listed in Ephesians 4, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and now the pastor-teacher, only the pastor-teacher has listed qualifications in Scripture. We don't see anywhere in Scripture qualifications for an apostle. We, we talked about that, how, how church theologians and scholars have tried to put together a list, but they've done that by you know, picking various verses from, from different passages. Uh, we don't see one for prophets. We don't see one for evangelists. But there are two lists that we see that Paul has written, one in, in writing to Timothy, one in writing to, to Titus, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where he's given to Timothy and Titus lists of what to look for in terms of qualifications, which were really important to them. And I thought about that. Well, why does he do it only for the pastor teacher? And, and it occurred to me, I think he did it because of the, the critical role that they play. That, that Paul was really, really cautious not to screw up the elder because of how powerful of a role they play in the direction in which that church is going to go. Again, leadership matters, as Bill Thrall was talking about. And if you got the wrong people in that role, not only did they, they lead the church into the ground potentially, but the collateral damage that comes with it is, is too important not to screw up. Or to, it's too important that you have to get it right. So he gives us two lists, uh, very similar, really. Uh, in, in again, First Timothy chapter three, in writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, but then also to Titus in Titus chapter one, verses five to nine, who was uh, in Crete at the time. Now, there's one in particular that I want to talk about uh, that's probably the most controversial, and we're gonna. We're only going to talk about it just really, really briefly here, but it's on this idea, can women serve as elders? 
And therefore, again, using the term, terms interchangeably, can women be pastors? Understanding the role of elders, can, women's, can women be overseers as well? So in our study these last few weeks, I've, I've made efforts to point out, as we've gone through it, what the Bible has taught to us about men and women serving in these various offices of leadership within the church. So when we talked about the role of an apostle, I pointed out that there was at least one female apostle named. That would have been Junia. Uh, but I'm confident there were others. Uh, I would not be surprised in the least bit if Priscilla and Lydia would have been also served as apostles, even though we don't see them officially named in that way. Uh, the Bible lists that there are female prophets in the Old Testament. We see that in, in the great women, Deborah. Uh, but also in the New Testament, we see women are named as prophets. There was Anna, who was named a prophet, um, as well as Philip's two young daughters. There are, there are no named female evangelists, but then again, we only have one person who is named an evangelist, and that's Philip. But I'm confident in saying that there are female evangelists as well. At New Life, now, we have women serving on the board of directors as deacons, because women can be deacons or deaconesses as, as well. And so we have women serving on the board. We, saw, we, that we have that in Sheila and Sue. We've had women speak on a Sunday morning, and we had that in Crystal Morris. And she's, we invited Crystal in part because she was a fantastic speaker and great teacher, and, and we're blessed every time she's come and, and shared with us. Uh, but we also did it because we wanted to send a message. We wanted everyone to know where we stood. Can women teach? Can women speak in a church? And the answer is absolutely. Women have a speaking gift. Women have speaking roles. We see that in the apostle. We see that in the prophet. We see that in the... Uh, in the evangelist. And so they can speak. They need to speak. They play a critical role and, and they don't need to go home despite what one uh, Bible teacher has said. The, the role isn't just in the home, in the kitchen. They have a role in the church. They play a critical role in the leadership, a critical role in offering what gifts they've been given um, from God. But when it comes to the elder, for whatever reason, God, in his word, has limited the role of elder to men. Not all men, but he only calls certain men to serve in that role. And, and we, I wish we had time, but we don't have the time to, to go into all the detail right now. Uh, we'll, we'll try to cover some of those differences between men and women when we get to chapter 5 and we start talking about husbands and wives. Um, but here's the thing. It comes down to what his father's word teach us. And, and I recognize that this is a difficult topic. It's a controversial topic. And there are differing views on it. And, and in making such a statement that only men can serve as elders, I, I totally understand that I open myself up to being called certain names. And, and some of you might even stop calling New Life your home church. And I, I understand that. But here's the thing. After many, many hours of studying Father's Word, of talking to various people, of of researching different different books and different articles and, and websites and <clears throat> and seeing it from every different vantage point possibly, I'm left with only one conclusion. That unless we're willing to jettison parts of Father's Word because it's deemed socially unpopular and, 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 and culturally unpopular, there's only one conclusion, and we need to be faithful to Father's Word. And so the, if you've got a problem with what I'm saying, I understand that, but but I think the problem is, is ultimately with Father's Word then. 
Now, I welcome anyone who has any questions or has a different view on this. I, I really do. I, I invite you to engage with me in a conversation. That, that conversation, though, I, I don't think can happen right now in this format. It's better off one-on-one. -on -one. And I've had that, that conversation with multiple people. And, and so if you've got some, some criticisms or you've, you've got some questions, I'm, I would love to listen to them. You can send me an email, greg at, I'm kidding. You can send me an email, ross at newlifekw.ca. I'm serious. And I would love to engage with you in a conversation. We'll take a look at Father's Word and try to understand it and look at the, the different critical passages that are there. But we don't have time right now this morning because to do so would, would really take hours to, to do it justice because it is so important. And a lot of people have those questions on there. But that's one of the qualifications. There are other qualifications of an elder. And as I said earlier, we're not going to we have not just one list, but we have two lists. And lists are very similar, but we're not going to read through both of those lists. We're going to only read through one list. And, and we're going to read through it. And, and instead of going into great detail on them, uh, I, instead I want to read through the list just so I could highlight to you a common theme in it. So we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And so Paul, writing to Titus, he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, again, plural, in every city, it's happening everywhere, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, uh, that would refer to um, uh, in part alcohol, but also just in terms of uh, a sloppy life, basically. Uh, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, but the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, meaning not looking for a fight all the time, not found uh, or fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good. Sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. I gotta tell you, when I, when I read through that list every time, my first thought is how inadequate I feel looking at that list. But what I want you to notice here is that list and what it's, what it's pushing to or what it's referring to more is it, it's, it's only got one item there that talks about function or ability. The, the rest of it is, is talking about character. So the only time it talks about function and ability is talking about being able to teach and specifically able to teach the new covenant. But to the rest is talking about what kind of a man, what kind of a heart does he have? And notice it didn't include diplomas. It didn't de include degrees. It didn't include training. It didn't even include experience. It says, what kind of a person is this man? So it include character descriptions such as humble, insensible, just or fair, faithful, quick-tempered, loving. Honestly, Greg, it's a good thing you're appointed because I'm not sure how you would have made the list otherwise. But anyways, these qualities, these characteristics, they're crucial because the role of pastor is not one of power. It's one of responsibility. 
And what I mean by that is when you become a pastor, when you step into that role as an elder, you are becoming a servant. You're laying down your life for others. Jesus, Jesus pictured it best, I think, on the night of his arrest. Remember when, when he had all his disciples around him and he, he grabbed the towel and he, he put it around his waistband and he grabbed the bowl and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He, he took on the role of a servant and served them. And he did that because he was trying to send these guys a message. That, Listen, you guys as the apostles who are going to be leaders, this is how you serve. See, as a leader, the people aren't there for you. You're there for them. And so that's what you're stepping into as a role of a pastor, as an elder. You are stepping into this place where you want to lay your life down willingly in order to serve other people. Again, it's not about power. It's about responsibility. And that's why being a pastor, it's not, about, it's not just a job or a career. It's a calling. It's something that you, you are compelled to do. It, it's something that you just, you need, <clears throat> you need to do. <clears throat> My friend Frankie likes to say, if, when people are thinking about becoming a pastor, he says, is there anything else you can do? Because if so, go do it. But if, if this is the one thing that you, you just have to do, then do it. And that's why it's never about the title. See, a true elder is one who's doing the work regardless if they have the title or not. They're doing the work of caring for the heart of others. They're looking out for other people. They don't need the title. If you need the title, if you need that spotlight, then the job's not for you. Then you're not ready for it. First off, you will be disappointed. See, part of, part of what happens as, a, as an elder, as a pastor, is you will give far more than you get back. You will invest in other people. You will give yourself over to more to people and they won't give you as much as you give to them. And so you will be disappointed. You, you will end up feeling embittered and angry and burnt out. That's why we see so many ministry leaders, so many pastors that are bitter. is because they're pouring and they're giving and they're just not getting it back. And the reality is that's, that's the nature of the business. That's what's going to happen. But more importantly, if you're doing it for the title, if you're doing it for the life that you can get from it, from the glory that you can achieve as a result of it, you're going to abuse people. And, and again, God's people, his children are too precious to be exposed to that. This week, Robin shared with me um, uh, an article. He shared it with all of us as elders an, an article that I think does such a great job of of summarizing this idea so well, and what we see really is in the the modern pastor today, it's a, it's from a man named Paul David Tripp. So let me read part of the article to you. He says there are two things at the heart of the leadership crisis in the church. The first is that we've backed away from a biblical definition of a leader: humble, gentle, kind, faithful, loving servant kind of character qualities that are in the Timothy passage, as well as the Titus passage, that when it talks about qualifications for elder, the kind of character qualities that are in the fruit of the Spirit, we've backed away from these qualities. And our definition of a leader now is strong personality, quick-witted, forceful, domineering, able to win the day in a discussion or argument, and cast vision and collect people. I'm going to say this. 
No wonder we produced a culture of ministry bullies who mistreat people. These are leaders who took a look at staff not as a servant, but see these people as tools for his success. Leaders who look at a congregation not as disciples that need his care, sheep that need a shepherd, loved ones that need nurturing, love, and comfort, but instead as consumers. And leadership success is now defined as collecting as many consumers as you can. We backed away from the biblical definition of a leader, and we are paying the price for this new definition. No wonder so many Christians are being hurt. Why pastors and other ministry workers are burning out. Why, why the church seems to be so impotent to speaking into this world today. We just lack the power. And I mean, you think about the, the world is in such a crisis, in such a dark place, that this ought to be a time where the light of the church is, is contrasted and is, is showing so brightly. And yet, we've, we've got no ground to stand on. Leadership matters. Because too often that pastor is doing it for their own sake. Too often they, they treat it as a business. And what really needs to happen is... is it's a ministry of service. It's a ministry of caring for people. That leads us now into the function of the pastor teacher. And, and so what I want to focus now is, is just on that idea of pastor teacher. And I think the function really is in that name. Again, pastor, that's the, the word pomain, and it, it's the Greek word for shepherd. And I think that's a great description of what we're supposed to do. Let's go back to 1 Peter now. In 1 Peter chapter 5, again, look at what Paul, or sorry, what Peter writes to these, these people. He says to them, Therefore I, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those, uh, those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. <clears throat> There's a couple of things here. I, I, th I find it interesting here that here's Peter writing to these fellow elders, and he says, shepherd God's people. And what I found interesting is, remember when, when Peter was, was kind of uh, restored by Jesus? He'd, he'd rejected Jesus three times, and, and then Jesus in John chapter 21 restores Peter three times. Each time, what did he say? He said, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. He was inviting Peter as to be that elder, to be that pastor to them. And so with that same calling now, he's saying, just as, just as Father, just as Jesus said to me, I'm now saying, encouraging you in the same way. And notice what he says here is that Jesus is the arch shepherd. That's the arch pomain, really. He's the chief shepherd. He's the, he's the over shepherd. He's the shepherd in charge, whereas the rest of us are under shepherds. And, and I think that's significant because the idea here <clears throat> is that that I don't have a flock, that, that you, as part of new life, you're not mine. You don't belong to me. You, you all belong to Jesus. He's the chief shepherd in all this. But I am I'm serving him, caring for 
his flock. And I say that because, again, too many pastors get possessive of people. And you don't, you don't belong to me. I don't have that kind of power over you. You're free from me as I'm free from you. Again, I'm, I, I'm serving Jesus and serving you as a pastor. And I think there's a different mindset in all that. So let's think about that shepherd now and how that shepherd leads. And so first thing we saw is that the shepherd feeds the flock. And I think, again, pastors do that more, th- more through, through word, through teaching. We do that by, by coming back to and sharing the word of God with you. What is the new covenant? The truth of, of who you are in Jesus. The truth of, of our righteousness, or our identity in Christ. That it's, it's more than just labels. It's actually who you are. It's who God has made you to be. And, and the critical understanding of that, the, the, the ability to understand this new identity because it sets us free from shame. It sets us free from our insecurity. And so over and over again, we're feeding you with the truth of who you are, and, but also the truth of who Jesus is in you so that we see that there's a power inside of us that we don't have to rely on our own strength, our own power. We get to rely on the very life of Jesus. That's the new covenant. Not one of following the, the law and rules. That's old covenant Christianity, or Judaism at least. But new covenant Christianity is trusting the life of Jesus, living by faith, free from the law, free from those expectations, free from those standards to experience the power and life of Jesus in us. So we feed God's people through his word. The other thing I see that the, the shepherds do is they protect the flock. And as shepherds now we you know, we protect against false doctrine and bad teaching or bad influences. We saw earlier in Acts chapter 20 where, where Paul warned these elders. He warned these pastors that, that wolves would come in sheep clothing. And, and that's what we see. Shepherds would constantly be defending the flock from these wolves. And we do this as pastors by identifying unbiblical or un- unchristian teaching. Teaching such, for example, that we need to go back to the law false doctrines, uh, unhealthy relationships that we see people experiencing. We're encouraging people to reject um, the, the evil influences of our culture, encouraging people to embrace Jesus, inviting them to voluntarily choose Jesus. And that's what's so great about this, this leadership. As, as Peter said, it's not by compulsion. It's by invitation. And so that leads us into the next one in terms of of shepherds lead. We guide. And that's the oversight of the church. That's what we do as the the overseers now. Just as a shepherd guides the flock from field to field around certain dangers, that's what we as the elders are doing to the church. Again, leadership always matters. Leadership is important. Especially right now as we're navigating this time through covid and so the elders, we're, we're trying as best we know how to trust the life of Jesus, to lead the church and navigate this church through this time and this uncertainty when we're not easily able to get together so that we can still function and experience a community of grace. Shepherds also, they, they restore those who get lost. When someone gets off track, the, 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 we see the parable that Jesus talks about how the shepherd would leave the 99 to go rescue the one. And that's what the shepherds will do in the church. As pastors see people begin to drift, those who kind of get either stuck in sin or begin to drift away, 
pastors will reach out and invite them back through love. Again, not by compulsion. It's an invitation. It needs to be voluntary. And I think that's so beautiful about the church. It's so beautiful about the leadership that God's ordained through it. But maybe the one that describes it the best is that a shepherd will lay down his life for the flock. I mean, think about it. David would, would fight bears and lions to protect the sheep. And that's, I think, the great heart, the great character we see of a, of a, of a pastor, of an elder, is they're willing to lay down their own life for others. See, that's the biggest thing I have to offer anyone. It's not my intellect. I, I certainly don't have any degrees in, in, you know, in seminary and all this. I, I, I don't have that, that regular training. What I have to offer you is my heart, who I am, and my love for you at my own expense. Many months ago, we, we had John Lynch up here and... <clears throat> It was just over a year ago now, I guess, and as elders and as our wives, we, we got together with John and, and Stacy and, and his, his friend Doug, and, and uh, we took him out for dinner, and we were talk, talking to John, and we're, we wanted to kind of learn from him with his 25-plus years' experience of being an elder in a church, and, and he made this great statement that stuck with all of us. He says, as, a, as an elder, what you're doing is you're putting your own neck on the line. You're putting your neck out there for people, and that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're going to lay it on our life for you to help you, to serve you, so you can unravel those lies that the enemy has told you. Lies about who you are. And begin to, to share truth with who you really are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you. See, I, I became a pastor because I had no other choice, really. I was so compelled to do it. Because this is what I want to do. People used to ask me, not so much anymore, but when I, when I first went into the ministry, they'd ask me from time to time, you know, would I ever go back into engineering? And, you know, it's been, you know, what, 15 years now since I was an engineer. And it would be hard to do that now because, you know, it's so rusty. But I probably could if I wanted to because I'm still wired and I still think like an engineer. So I could do it if I wanted to. But there's no desire. There's no desire to go back into engineering because my calling is the pastor. That's my desire. My desire is to, to teach you the new covenant. My desire is to see you trust Jesus. My desire is for you to experience that life in him. I so badly want to see it because when, when people do, when they lean into Jesus and they put more faith in what scripture says than what their feelings say, when they put more faith in what Jesus thinks in them when than what their spouse or their children or their friends or their, their parents or their own past, their own story says about them. When they experience that level of trust, it changes everything. So that's what, as a shepherd, it's the character of what we're called to do as pastors. Care for, look after, protect and feed, even at our own expense. And then the other side of it is the teacher part. And so the teacher, the teacher explains often what they're doing now. And, and so not all elders will teach as, as I am teaching right now. Not all elders are called to do that. Paul talks about how, how some elders are called to set aside that time and study. And, and so 
all, all elders are able to teach. Not all elders will teach in this specific manner. But I, I'm, I'm so grateful when I look at, at Greg and Josh and Robin, and I think about how these men have understood and embraced the new covenant and how they so faithfully and so well are able to articulate and share that with you and I. I just think it's so incredible. But they're able to do it not just in, a, in an accurate way. What I love is they're able to do it in love and they're able to do it in gentleness even with those who disagree, because that's what they're called to do. And so as, as a teacher, it's so important that we have good doctrine, that we have good theology. As, as my friend Jim likes to say often, that a bad theology is a horrible taskmaster. And the reason is for it is because if truth sets us free, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, then lies put us into bondage. And that's what bad theology is. They're lies, and they bind us up. They weigh us down. And so in teaching accurate theology, in teaching the new covenant, we're unshackling all those, those lies. We're removing all the, the baggage and the burdens that are weighing us down. And we get to teach grace. Again, the new covenant, not the law of the old covenant. And, and, and I love how we, do, we don't do it from a lens of grace. Oh, I hate it when teachers talk that way. We need to look at this passage from a lens of grace. No, because that it would imply that we have to somehow twist and distort the passage to get it to fit our theology. No, what we're doing is we're taking all the lenses away so we can see scripture clearly and plainly because the scripture is clearly about grace. We're removing the lens of the law. We're removing the lens of the Old Testament. We're removing the lens of performing, trying to earn God's approval. We're removing that lens of an angry, disappointing God because that's not who he is. That's a lens that the enemy has placed in front of us. We're going to take it away so we can see who we are in Jesus and who Jesus is in us. It's a teaching that builds us up, teaching that encourages us, that, that reminds us of this power, not one that beats you up and whips you into shape. And ultimately, all this teaching empowers us to join with Jesus in this work of service, to help in the building up of one another. Again, it's not limited to the pastor. It's not limited to those who are in leadership. The whole body of Christ gets to serve in this way. And so that's what we're doing. And, and maybe even be able to identify others who are able to do it. As, as 2 Timothy 2, 2 likes to, uh, Paul likes to say there, that we're to, to identify others, other men who are faithful and teach them and trust them with the new covenant so they can teach others. And so that's what we're doing. We're trying to empower and equip the body of Christ to do the work of the body of Christ, that work of, of restoration, as that equipping. As we saw, that word equipping means to, to restore to repair. And we get to do that as a group, as one another. So that's what we're doing. We're trying, to, we're trying to encourage you to experience life as a church. And so uh, <clears throat> as we pray here, before we pray, let me just say this. On behalf of the elders, I, I would appreciate your prayers. Because it is, a, it is a difficult job in the sense of the responsibility is is incredible. 
And as Paul likes to say, who is worthy of such a calling? And you saw that list. You see who I'm working with. Please pray for us. Please pray for me. But I ask in all seriousness because you're too important to us. We love you too much. And so we'd appreciate your prayers. And, and we also appreciate your, your counsel and your wisdom. Please reach out to us. Please talk to us. We'd love to, love to know where you're at and how you're thinking and what you're struggling with and how we best can love you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad to know that you are the chief shepherd. You're the one in charge, Jesus. And you have entrusted us as these under-shepherds to care for your flock and your people. And I pray, Father, that you would lead and guide us now so that we would be instruments of your grace and your life as we feed and tend your lambs, as we care for and protect your, your people, so that your bride will be presented to you without spot and blemish. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to do that through us. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.